All right, let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up where we left off. I, you know, we kind of finished up there in, in verse 10. And I was explaining this morning, you know, as we go through the Scriptures, here's, here's the beauty of going through the, the exposition, you know, ex, expositionally through the Scriptures. You get the whole ball of wax, so to speak. You, you know, uh, it was funny because I heard one of the pastors this morning say that uh, uh, he's taken some classes, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying it. He said it publicly, so I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying it because, uh, you know, it was, I thought it was funny, and at the same time, it was enlightening. Uh, he's taken some classes, and he had turned in one of his sermons, and he thought he would, had done a great job on it, and he got a C on it, and he was upset. And one of the pastors had told him that uh, this sounded like something he probably preached every Sunday, and that even made him matter. And, uh, <laughs> but here's what he said, and I thought, well, there's some self-enlightenment, so maybe he's learned, you know. He said, he said, I do realize that I do tend to come back to the same old topics. Well, why is that? Well, there's a reason for that. It's called topical teaching. And, and here's the problem. And we're all that way. All, every preacher is that way. If you ask me, Doug, if, if you're going to go preach in front of a bunch of people that don't know you, and you only get to do one sermon, you can't teach. You know, it's got to be a topical, which I've done many, many, many. What are you going to teach on? Well, you know what I'm teaching on. I'm teaching on the grace of God and the restoration through Jesus Christ and all that he's done. Why? That's my pet thing, man. I love it. I want to embrace the warm fuzzy of God. I love it. I love talking about how God lavishes his love on us, how he has forgiven us, restored us, how nothing you do. I love talking about that. Howbeit, there's a lot of other things in the scriptures. And as we go through it, sometimes we have to deal with some tough stuff. I kind of felt that way last week. I felt that, you know, when you're dealing with the issue of raising children and how you know, we ought to be able to do that, how we should do that. That's a tough thing because everybody who has kids, and that's probably most of the people sitting here and certainly uh, many of them listening by radio, uh, one thing they don't want you doing, and that's telling them how to raise their kids. Even, the, even God. They really don't. I'm telling you, they'll say they do. <laughs> Believe me, I've, I, I, could, I could give many proofs. That they'll say they do, but yet they don't. And so we look at our society today, and that was really my point was that there's so many things that go on in the church, and we need to really set that example for our children. And uh, some of us haven't always been good at it, and, uh, but there's, it's never too late. Never too late. We can, we can always go back to our kids and, and really begin to set that godly example that will lead them in the right direction. One of the things I did want to touch on that I didn't get to uh, touch on that same topic, though, and I'm just going to briefly mention it, uh, is something that has, uh, in our society anyway, in our culture, has become a, a thing that... We, we are trying to protect our children because, you know, as I told you, we were talking about how God chastens. And God chastens by allowing our own sin to have its repercussion on our life. You know, we, we, he allows us to have the responsibility or to take the responsibility for our own thing here, here and now. Okay? We, we're going to reap what we sow is what the scriptures teach. But we have a society now, and, and I'm only concerned with Christendom. I'm only concerned with the church. I understand the world being this way. I don't understand Christians being this way. But we try to shelter our kids from any bad thing that they will do or the repercussions of it. And I, I would encourage you not to do that. Let your children reap what they sow. They're going to learn from it. We all have. We are all vessels here tonight and listening uh, some other way. We have all had our moments of stupidity, uh, some to a greater degree than others, and we've learned from those things. 
And we come back into the body of Christ in a restored state, a state of, of, of restoration, and we are able to help other people that way. But we've learned from it. We've learned from it. But so often today, we're producing kids that are totally dependent upon their parents. I mean, let's look at the facts, gang. I mean, we've got guys that are 20, 30, 40 years old living with mom and dad. And, and I'm talking Christians. And even after they leave the house sometimes, they're still totally dependent upon mom and dad. They, they don't ever seem to cut that string for some reason. Don't shelter them. Let them grow. And they'll grow in the Lord. Let them make mistakes, but let them recoup what they've sown. Let them go through that process. And they'll be better people for it. And if you want them to be godly people, then give them the example, the best one that you can, uh, of how much you love the Lord. They'll see it. Are they going to make mistakes? Yes, but don't try to shelter them from the consequences of it. That said, let's look at verse 11. Now, no chastening, he says, for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. <laughs> In my notes, I put down, man, this hurts. And it does. It does. So often we find ourselves on the receiving end of sin that we have sown, just as I was saying before. Many of us have come to the conclusion often during that time, though, that my punishment is greater than my crime. And we can become discouraged in those particular times. But listen, no chastening, he says, for the moment seems to be joyous. The law of reciprocity, and if you haven't written that down, write it down. The law of reciprocity is a painful process. It hurts. You're not going to escape it. We've talked about this in depth through other studies. It's just like the law of gravity. It is a spiritual law that is in effect. You won't escape it. But it's a painful process for those of us who have been exercised by it. It is. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't look at the chastening itself. If, if you've been through it, and most of us have, the Bible says we're all partakers of this law of reciprocity. Don't look to it itself. You know, don't, don't allow yourself to become discouraged in that. But look to the end of it. You know, there's the process. If you focus on the journey of... of, of of chastening, it, it's, it's going to be a miserable thing. You're just going to be downtrodden. And so don't do that. Look to the end result of it. There's a Christian alive today who has had a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ who, having gone through some sin, self-inflicted or otherwise, and, and, and then reaped the benefit of that, which is never good, who hasn't come out the other side of that a stronger, more spiritual person. And more able, I believe, at that particular time to warn others of what you shouldn't do. I mean, really, that's what we're doing. We're ministering to each other. So I mean, we've, all, we've all got our stories, but that's what we do. We minister to one another. And, and learning from our mistakes is one way of doing that. In my many years of, of ministry, I've listened to so many Christians confess their moments of stupidity to me. You know, they would they, they'd go into great detail, but only to hear this at the end. But let me show you what the Lord taught me through that. Let me show you how God delivered me from that. Let me show you how the Lord, you know, helped or used this particular thing to help, you know, rescue me from the snare of the devil. 
Let me show you how that's done. That's what we're supposed to do. You know, we talked a lot this last time about the scars that sin leaves in our lives as Christians, and it does. We're all scarred. We're all, we're all sitting here to a different degree. We all have those scars. Jesus, when we find him in heaven, when we finally get there, we're going to see that he still bears the scars of our sin. But we bear our own in this life. And like I told you before, if you will allow the Lord to simply use those scars, you can turn those from a shameful thing into a story of his glory, which is what the Lord wants you to do. Don't ever be ashamed, gang, of being honest about things that you've done. And I'm not talking about being a, because sometimes I've heard Christians do it. You know, maybe you haven't, maybe, maybe it's just me, but I've been around guys that will start talking about the old days, you know, and they start trying to one-up each other on how bad they were. You know, before I knew Jesus, you know, well, let me, really? Let me tell you how bad I was. It almost becomes a bragging thing where they start actually, you know, telling the bigger and bigger stories. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is with sincerity of heart and with the seriousness that that situation deserves to explain to somebody honestly and openly what happened to you. Now, I'm talking from personal experience. Is it hard to do? Yeah, it's hard to do. Nobody likes admitting that they screwed up. Nobody likes admitting that they've done something heinous. David didn't like admitting it. David was even, you know, so hardened in his heart that, that he thought that he had buried that situation with him and Bathsheba and, of course, and her husband. Here was a man who was guilty of murder. Here was a man who was guilty of a lot of things, and it took Nathan coming to him and telling him the story. You know the story. And he told him the story of the little ewe lamb. And David was so incensed at hearing what he himself had actually done, he said, this man shall surely be put to death. That's how mad he was at listening to his own sin, that a man who would do such a thing ought to be put to death. And Nathan said, thou art the man. And immediately, out of David, because he was a man after God's own heart, immediately, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And immediately, the prophet says, thy sin is put away. See, isn't it so cool how God is? See, once we confess and forsake a sin, it is over with. Restoration has begun. Although, and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit, it, it can be a very painful process. So, no chastening for the moment seems to be joyous. It's not, it's not a good thing to go through. You know, we all have our stories, and we could go back to our own childhood. Uh, I, I've heard many of these, and uh, we've all done it. I mean, maybe you didn't have a dad who was old school like mine. Now, my dad was old school. You know, you did something. He didn't say it twice. He only said things once. And if the infraction was caught, <laughs> there would be an What's the word I'm looking for? An impression made on your backside that he wanted to make sure you would never forget. And, you know, when that would happen, you know, I found myself sometimes, you know, you'd be in there whimpering in it because my dad's big thing was you got a spanking and you went to your room. And I'd be in there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I were dead, they'd be sorry. You know, they'd be sorry. You know, I, you know and you sit there and you feel sorry for yourself. And then, you know, but here's the cool part about that is that, you know, after a while, you come out, 
And you're able to join back in in a family. You know, that thing that you did has already been dealt with. And restoration happens. And actually, the end of it is a better thing. But at the moment, at that moment, it was not a joyous thing. So no, no, uh, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. Uh, but nevertheless, as he says, it, it yields that peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised by it. Wherefore, he says, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which be lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And I like this. As you go through the chastening process, it's very easy to wind up feeling discouraged, feeling beat, if you will, as I was talking about a minute ago. But it's during those particular times that you might feel so much like, you, you really don't feel like lifting up your hands in praise to the Lord or bending the feeble knee in worship. But to be honest with you, it's at those particular times that you really need to do those things. We need in those moments of discouragement to lift up our hands unto the Lord. So often we, we talk about the lifting of hands and so many people don't even realize what it means. And it blesses my heart as a Christian and as a pastor and a Bible teacher, you know, to see people worship God with their hands raised. It does. Why? Because as of being a Jew, it, it means something to the Jews. Now, I don't know whether you knew this. I know a lot of you just, you know, maybe see it as just a, an act of, of uh, I don't know, surrender, and, and which it is. But it's also an act of worship and of praise and of really just opening up yourself unto the Lord. And, uh, you know, that's why Paul the Apostle said, I would that all men everywhere pray with uplifted hands. I think we could add sing to that too, you know, and, and to do it with uplifted hands because we're just surrendering our heart and really just opening our lives up to all that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us at that moment, at that moment of worship. But so often when we're in that, that process of chastening, you can get discouraged to the point where you don't want to lift up the hands. You don't want to bend the feeble knee to worship. But we really, at those moments, really need to. We need to reset our focus back on the things of God. Too many times in Christendom, those who have been through the chastening process can become discouraged so deeply that instead of returning to that place of worship that is by lifting up our holy hands and, and bowing the feeble knee in restoration to worship, that they wind up kind of unfortunately like a lame man who limps off into the darkness never to be seen from again. That can happen. This is why the apostle is warning us about this, you know, not to do that. You know, lift them up. I'll tell you, so often I've heard as, you know, I've been in the ministry for so many years and I've heard so many stories of people who went through a chastening process, maybe, uh, you know, uh, in connection with a body, uh, a church body or whatever, and it was not a good experience. I mean, once again, no chasing for the moment seems to be joyous. It's bad enough as it is. But so often, brothers and sisters in the Lord can actually add to the pain of it and not realize that they're doing that by not showing grace and not showing mercy. And some people can be wounded to the point where they actually turn their back, not only on the church gang, they turn their back on the Lord because they're judging him by how we act. You know, and it's unfortunate that they do that because they just don't know the scriptures. And if they, don't, if they knew the scriptures, they would know how much Jesus really loves them in spite of his people sometimes. But it can happen. But this is where brothers and sisters in the Lord, 
can really become a much-needed agent of grace in the body of Christ. You know, turn your Bibles real quick, if you will, to Galatians chapter 6. I just want to read something to you, talking about this, you know, making straight paths for your feet and, and really looking at the issue of restoration. It's something I wrote pretty extensively about in my book. But in Galatians 6, 1, he says this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... You which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou be also tempted. Follow after, you know. So he's telling them, if you're spiritual, we, you know, our, our main calling is to restore people. Is to restore people. And we want to do that. But notice he says, you who are spiritual. I've often looked at people who have not been a part of a restoration process who fight against it. What's that tell me? They're not spiritual. They might claim it. They might say what they want. But the fact is, Paul says in Galatians, you who are spiritual, if a brother or sister be taken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You know, it, it becomes easier, gang, for you uh, to be a part of God's restoration process than it to be, does to become a part of his punishment. You know, so often people, you know, God, you know, cast your wrath out upon so-and-so and let me be the instrument by which you do it. That, that seems to be the cry of some people's hearts, and that's unfortunate. There's an old saying in Christendom that only Christians kill their wounded. And it shouldn't be true. It shouldn't be true. And I thank God it's not true at this church. It's not true at this church. These are very gracious, very restorative people. And uh, one thing you can say about Marne is that these are gracious people. They are some of the most gracious people. And I've been to many, many churches. I've taught all over the place. These people are very gracious and very loving. And, I, and I'm so proud to be here. Uh, so look, let's look at verse 14. Follow peace after, with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears." It's imperative that having gone through the chastening process, once we come out the other side, gang, that we pursue peace with those that we have affected by our sin. It's important that we do that. All too often, those around you who might have been affected in some way by your sin against God can make it, they can take it personally. And I'm, once again, I'm talking from personal experience. On it. They take it personal. Even though you, at, the, at that moment in your life, at that time, you were off in la-la land, you were no more thinking of hurting them than anything. But the fact is, it's like that ripple effect. You know, when you take a pebble and you throw it into a pond, that ripple's going to start. It's going to start that little ripple. And even though you might not see it, eventually that wave is going to reach even the shores. It's going to touch every part of that lake. We way underestimate that sometimes. So we need to make peace with those people that we have affected. 
this is where the word peace, you know, he says pursue peace. The word peace in the Greek simply means reconciliation. Now, I'm not sitting here telling you that that's always possible. Sometimes it won't be. Now, we've all probably got stories. I've got one great story of, of, of somebody in our own church who uh, read my book and his whole family was restored because of it. And praise the Lord for that. That's great. That doesn't always happen, gang. You know, Paul the Apostle said, as much as it lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. I'm here to tell you, some pen won't let you. See, the problem is, is that when somebody takes your sin personally, even though your sin was against God, just like David said, I sinned against the Lord. And, and, and God recognized that. Of course, that's really inevitably who we are sinning against. It's not sinning against people. We're sinning against God. We hurt people and we offend them by our sin. But it really isn't them we're sinning against. It's God. But when that happens, a lot of times they take it personal. And when they take it personal, and then, and then you come to your senses. And then you confess your sin. And then you begin to rejoice in the restoration that God is pouring out on your life. And the blessing. And all of a sudden, you're back to normal. And then you go to make friends with them again or to apologize to them. You're going to find sometimes they don't want no part of it. They don't want to touch you with a 10-foot pole. Well, listen... Don't allow that to become anything, any root of bitterness in you. Because it can. Too often, in the process of trying to make peace, you know, because people are not susceptible to it, they're not receptive to it, we can become embittered to that, you know, become disenchanted with them, you know, and begin to maybe say things or think things that we shouldn't. You know, bitterness is one of those things that really can tear you apart. So you've got to be careful about that. But we're to pursue peace with all men and holiness. That is that total place of dependency upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Of course, he says, without which no man shall see the Lord. If God has not imputed his righteousness and his holiness to you by faith alone, you stand no chance of seeing God. But it's all by faith in Jesus. This is something that we need to do diligently uh, because for some, having not done it, they fail the grace of God. You know, we need to pursue that. And we don't want to fail the grace of God. We want to extend the grace of God just like it has been extended to us. And uh, there's nothing greater than that. Now, when you're dealing with restoration, restoration, like I said, can be hard. It can be a tough process. Regardless of how grievous the error, once we have tasted of the peaceable fruit of righteousness, having confessed and forsaken our sin, those of us who experienced it is, you know, and, and gone through those things, those period, we have this elation, this joy like I was talking about. But sometimes, once again, people don't want to acknowledge that. This is when defiling, that bitterness can rise up in, your, in a person's life. And it can happen on both sides of the fence. It can happen on the offender's side because the offended doesn't want to accept your apology, or it can happen on the offended side because they don't want to accept your apology. So they become embittered because they've taken your sin personally. Do you understand what I'm getting at? But he says, lest any root of bitterness spring up and thereby many be defiled. I want to talk to you a little bit about that because I think a lot of Christians have some strange ideas what defilement is. And let's turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 7 because anytime you want a definition, Okay, the first place you want to turn to is the Word of God. 
Okay, even Noah Webster, as great a man as I think he was, who wrote the first dictionary in the English language, he's a great guy, Christian. I love his dick. I'm more concerned with what Jesus said defilement meant than I am what Noah Webster says defilement is. So here in Mark chapter 7, of course, Jesus was speaking. And let's look at verse 15. We'll start there. He says, there is nothing from without a man, that means outside of a man, that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If a man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are you also without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from outside enters into a man, it cannot defile him? Because it enters not into his heart, but into his belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. Which I think is interesting. I'll throw this in for free before I go on. He says it's purging all meats. Now, is, you know, we've got this, the dietary police anymore. Yeah, have you noticed that? You know, like, everything is wrong. You know, the, God led the children of Israel into the land flowing with milk and honey. I always wondered, well, what if they were lactose intolerant? You know what I mean? What, that, that, wouldn't that have been terrible? For all them poor lactose intolerant people to have been led into the land of milk and honey. Even honey is being dogged by science anymore. So, you know, listen, I've watched all these commercials and, and all these things, uh, you know, for, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, organic foods and how much pure it is. And they always talk about all this bad stuff. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. I'm not saying not to eat healthy. I mean, you can eat healthy. I'm not saying be stupid. But I'm saying at the same time, eat by faith. Because God has given it to you. But I just thought that was interesting. But it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It cannot, he says, defile him. Look at verse 19. Because it enters not into his heart, but into his belly and goes out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. This is what defiles a man. And he says, beware, lest that root of bitterness spring up and many be defiled by it. Like I said, guys, it, it can happen on either side, to the offender or to the offended. To the offender, because the offended does not want to acknowledge that the offender has been restored. Thus, they do not accept the peace offering that was offered or want to acknowledge God's blessing upon the offender. To the offended, it happens because the hurt that they experience can produce a fertile soil in which the root of bitterness is so easily and quickly sprung up. Hmm. Thus it manifests itself in their lives in the form of evil speaking, tail-bearing, those kind of things. You know, we've heard the term character assassination. And so often this happens when people are get, they get hurt. You know, they want to destroy the integrity or what little bit there might be left in somebody else's life. 
And it's just wrong. Among Christians, it's wrong. I understand it in the world, gang. This is the way the world operates. Revenge is mine, says the world. You know, but the Lord says, not unto us. We don't do that. We restore. We, we want to show grace. We don't want to fall short of the grace of God. It is far better to pursue with all diligence the grace of God, to acknowledge his restoration that we might rejoice in it. We ought to rejoice when a brother or sister has fallen and then is restored. We ought to rejoice in that. The devil lost. He lost. We ought to rejoice in it. So often, I've heard Pastor Chuck many, many times talk about pastors who had fallen into some grievous sin and, of course, winds up being thrust out of the ministry. Chuck was the type of man who would call them up and say, come on over to Calvary Chapel. I've got a staff position I want to put you on. And he would take them under his wing and he would restore these men you know, not immediately. Everybody needs to go through a process of, of repentance and those type of things. But here was Chuck's reasoning. He goes, why would we take a man who is anointed by God, gifted in the area of teaching, and then have him, whatever it is he did, delete him totally from the body of Christ in that same capacity? Then the devil wins. Satan wins in those areas. And then we have a, a gifted man of God who's sitting in a trailer with his cat, you know, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> just, so it, it just came to mind. Poor guy sitting in a trailer with his little cat, you know. That's all he's got, you know. And he's doing nothing for the grace of God. You know, we don't want to do that. We want to be an agent of grace. I have no idea where that came from. Just my thought of what happens to some guy if he's not, you know, doing what God wants him to do. He just winds up in a trailer with a cat. Probably one that sheds all over the place, you know. You know. So, once again, it's much better. It's much better for us to embrace the grace of God and to be a part of the restoration of each other in those particular cases. Or you can put it this way. It's better to sing the praises of the Lord's restoration than to talk about men's failures. I think that's the way to say it. It's better to do that. Because we've all had our failures, gang but we all have experienced the restoration and the grace of God, and that's what we should bestow upon each other. This is what the scriptures and the, and the apostles trying to get across from us. Just on touching the issue of Esau in this same verse, it's important, I think, to make, uh, or to at least have the right thinking towards this. Esau, you know, you can't think that Esau couldn't repent. It's not what he's saying. Or that he tried to repent, and he couldn't repent. That's not what the scripture is saying. What he's saying is that Esau really, Esau cried over one thing, his lost blessing. That's what he was crying. That's what he was seeking. He was, the only thing he was repenting over was the lost blessing. Now, I worked in a prison for quite some time, many, 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 many moons ago when I was a young man. And we had a saying in there that every prisoner in there was sorry. <laughs> They were. They were absolutely sorry. Not for what they did. They were sorry they got caught, <laughs> you know. Now, there might have been some exceptions to that. Most of them were sorry for they get, because they got caught. This is Esau. Esau sought, you know, the blessing from his father. Well, why did he not receive it? Because he treated it as a worthless thing. He disrespected it. You know, he sold it for a morsel of bread. 
really for a little pot of porridge. And, and it was just, you know, it was nothing. And, 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 it, and he treated it like it was nothing, except when it came time to receive the benefit of it. Then he realized what he had done. So he cried. It wasn't that he couldn't repent. He just wasn't repenting of the right thing. So some people have, you know, they, they read that and they kind of get off on it. I heard a preacher say one time that there are those who really don't care about being a Christian. What they really want is the blessings of Christianity. They want to live in a Christian nation. However, they have no taste for actually being a Christian. They could never see themselves living in a pagan nation. They just want the blessings and the freedom that come with Christianity, which it always brings. However, these kind of people have no place of repentance. They, they just want the benefit of it. They don't want the actual thing, which is Jesus Christ. So, now, looking into verses 18 through 21. The writer of Hebrews now is going to start to, giving us kind of a contrast of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so we're just briefly going to go through this. Look at verse 18. He says, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they heard entreated that the world, or excuse me, that the word should not be spoken unto them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. In Exodus 19, you guys can go back and read it. I'm going to read some of it for you. You go back and just read uh, Exodus 19, look at verses 14 through 22, but you, you don't have to turn there. Just stay where you're at. I'm going to read some of it for you. It says in verse 14, it says, And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount. And the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud, that be this thing, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on, on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended in the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai and on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up and broke through unto the Lord to gaze, and, excuse me, I jumped, to, I jumped to verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down and charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord and gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priest also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. So imagine this scene in your mind, if you can, of this dreadful sight. I mean, here they are out there to meet God, which ought to be a glorious thing. And it's a fearful thing for these guys. Of course, in that following chapter, in chapter 20, uh, God winds up giving Moses the, the, the law. But here, 
the writer of Hebrews says, you have not come unto this mountain, which smoked and had the tempest of fire and the voice where the people said, man, we don't, we don't want to hear it. Even Moses himself said the sight was so fearsome that he quaked himself. He was shaking in his shoes, if you will. You've not come unto that. Verse 22 in Hebrews, he says, but you have come unto Mount Sion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. That's what we've come unto. Praise the Lord. You know, we have this great relationship now with God because of Jesus Christ. We can come boldly now unto the throne of grace. There's nothing stopping us. These people couldn't even come close to the mountain lest they would have been thrust through with a dart. Why? What was God trying to signify to them? He said, go down and warn the people that they don't even come close. Why? Lest they die. What was going to be given the very next chapter? The law. The law brings what? Death. It brings death. You cannot come to God by the law. God has always desired to have a beautiful, loving relationship with his creation. That's what he wanted. Man would have no part of it. Why? We like rules. Give us rules and regulations. Tell me what to do, O Lord, and we shall do it. Next chapter, and the children of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every time I hear somebody tell me, well, we're going to promise. We're promising God. We're going, I'm going, boy, you'd make a great Jew. You know what I'm saying? I remember the first time, and I told you guys this story, but I had a good friend of mine that was kind of a big wig in the promise keepers. You remember those guys? Not many do. <laughs> Why? Oh, promise keeping, that went out the window. <laughs> I remember the first time I met him, we were at a big, big church, and we were there with another speaker, and he was telling me, you know, he was, he was proud of it. <laughs> and he was telling me, and it happened to be, matter of fact, oh, interesting, it's our Holy Spirit, it happened to be on Rosh Hashanah, because we were coming into the, oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, this was years ago, though. <laughs> and we got to talking about it. And he was going, oh, yeah, he was, they, was, they was in Washington with the, you know, with the however many man march they did and the promise keepers. And all the men stood up and promised to be good fathers and good sons. You know? And he, got, he went through this whole list of promises. And, and, of course, you know what I said. And the next chapter, and the children of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he went, what's that supposed to mean? I went, the truth, brother. The truth, it means the truth. You're never going to do what you said you just promised to do. What do you mean? I said, you've got a whole ministry built totally against what the New Testament teaches. You, you think it's wrong to be a good husband? No. I think it's wrong to promise. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, swear not neither by heaven, nor by earth, nor by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay. Say yes to Jesus Christ. Say yes to the Holy Spirit. And your life will say yes to the things that are right in this life. Amen? Amen. It's that simple. 
But you stand back and go, Lord, I promise. I, I give you my word, which ain't worth a dime. You understand what I'm saying? The only word that is faithful is whose? God's. When God speaks, you can bank on it. That's why we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because it is immutable. It is absolute. It is absolutely faithful. He always keeps his word. Men, oh, we make our promises. Oh, I'm telling you, I'll do it. Until it comes time to deliver. And then I got something else to do. Sorry about that. You know, we don't mean to do that, but that's what happens. So I told him, I said, you make a great Jew, brother. But my, my encouragement to you is brace the, embrace the Messiah. <laughs> Be delivered from that. You want to work? Enter into the rest and embrace all that Jesus Christ has done because this whole promise thing, this whole we are going to do this, everything we do, I can't wait to finish chapter 13 and we're going to next time. It's a very short chapter, so we'll get through it next time because we're moving right into the book of Acts. This morning in Timothy, and I'm not, I'm not picking, I'm just adding some color to it of the preaching. What Paul told Timothy in the received text, this is the one I use, he said, stir up the gift that is in you. Stir up the gift that was given to you by the laying on of my hands. His emphasis was upon the power of the Holy Spirit. His emphasis was upon all the things that Timothy had set forth for him to do that God was going to do through him. But keep the Spirit the main thing. Stir up the gift that was given to him. What gift is that? Well, I'm not sure. It could have been the gift of teaching with Timothy. He was a pastor. It could have been, could have been the gift of tongues. I don't know which one it was. He was not told. But we're told that he was given a gift. And he was also encouraged to stir it up. Everything we do, gang, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we were talking so uh, earlier uh, about, you know, church building. Listen, I've quoted this verse more times than I could count in my lifetime. Except the Lord build the house, those that labor do it in vain. It is the work of the Holy Ghost. It is the work of the Holy Ghost. Now, does God use men? Yes, he does, and he uses women too. But he uses men and women who are in subjection to the Holy Ghost, who he has anointed. That's a term we're going to get to when we get to the book of Acts. It's important. Listen, you can have ability. Pulpits are filled with men who stand behind them and read the Word of God and even have some semblance of oratorial expertise. What they lack is anointing. What they lack is the fire of the Holy Spirit. What they lack is passion, which was brought on by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what they lack. And so they go about to try to whatever, to, 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 to do something that only the Holy Spirit. All they would have to do is submit to the Holy Spirit. Just submit. Ask. And it shall be given. You know, Jesus even said, if, if you being mere men know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more? Shall the Heavenly Father give the gift of the Holy Ghost to them that ask him? Have you asked? How simple is that? You know, there's no, everybody's got this thing because they don't really teach through the scriptures. They have these weird ideas of what it is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or how to receive it. Now, I do believe, according to the scriptures, and we're going to see that when we get to it, that it is most of the time, not all the time, most of the time it is separate and subsequent to salvation. Most of the time it is. Not always. I can show you some examples as we go through. It wasn't. Look at Cornelius' house. 
he was having the gospel preached to him, and the Holy Spirit, bam, <laughs> nailed him right before, before. So it happened before, but that's one of a, most of the time it's subsequent. How do you receive it? I don't know. My Bible says ask. Ask. But sometimes it's by laying on of hands. Sometimes, it, you know, but start off asking. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. <laughs> you know, we just need to ask. But this is what we really need to get back to. But we need to be concerned with coming unto that mountain, unto Mount Zion, where Jesus is. Let's get back to that. We haven't come unto this smoking furnace and everything else. We've come into this, this mountain that has been given to us by Jesus Christ, this new covenant through the Son. Look at verse tw uh, 22. But you are coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, Heavenly Father, unto Jerusalem, and, and an innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to the God and judge of all, who to the spirits and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speak of the better, than, there's better things than of Abel. Verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall that we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So refuse not him that speaks from heaven. If you remember back in chapter 1, you know, the apostle started off this epistle by saying, you know, that in diverse times, you know, the Lord spake to us by the prophets, and by, but hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So in the book of Hebrews, the message is of God to man through Jesus Christ. The better covenant that God had established through his Son, the better way, the better sacrifice. Thus the writer of Hebrews implores us not to refuse him who speaks, that is, Jesus Christ. And the revelation of God given to us through him. We don't want to dare refuse that because he says, you know, Moses was the man who spoke on earth. And even those who refused to obey the law was condemned by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven. If we turn our back on the word of God that we is so clearly to us given through Jesus Christ, there is no escape. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now... He hath promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. So, there's a catastrophe that's coming to this universe, gang. We are told in several passages of Scripture that the earth will be rolled back, it says, like a scroll. And that it's going to stagger to and fro like a drunken man. When you get to Peter, Peter talked about this where he says that the elements shall melt with fervent heat. This, this thing is going to be destroyed. But not everything. Well, the earth will be. All the universe. But there's going to be some things that cannot be shaken. And this word, yet once more, verse 27, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken and of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So God's going to shake the earth once more. He shook it the first time on Mount Sinai when he spoke. And he says, I'm going to this time not shake the earth only, but also the heavens. Once again, when you go back and read Peter and you, you listen, to, you know, he, he says 
Because the heavens shall melt, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. What manner of people ought we to be, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved? I mean, if we have our fixation on the fact that this earth is temporal, everything's temporal. Let's face it, from the moment that we build anything, you have to maintain it. It's what we call the slow burning of nature. It's actually a term for it. It's a science. They call it a slow fire. Everything is degrading. You take a piece of metal laid out in the rain, what happens? It rusts. It starts to fall apart. You know, it's also called the second law of thermodynamics. This is what happens. We have to continually maintain it. But that's only in the material realm. The, the spiritual realm is entirely different. The spiritual realm is very permanent. It has a permanency to it. You know, and remind yourself, and so often we need to remind ourselves, we are not a physical being with a spirit. We are a spiritual being with a physical body. Because our spiritual being is eternal. This particular body, well, it's temporal for the moment. It's going to have to be transformed, and we know that it will be because God says that it will be. So we will be resurrected. This body will, will put on immortality. But for the moment, we're a spiritual being with a mortal body. And it's going to eventually deteriorate. You know, that's all there is to it. I remember back in the 80s, uh, which really didn't produce any good music, just saying. But there was a girl who was barely big at the time. You might remember her name was Madonna. Remember Madonna? She had a song called Material Girl, Living in a Material World. And I remember at the time, I was pastoring my first church, and I was thinking, yeah, that's right, and it's going to burn. <laughs> it's going to burn. This whole thing is going to go up. I have to admit, one of my pet sins is watching stupid UFO flicks. Have you seen that? <laughs> now, I know they're not true. I mean, come on. I know the Word of God. But I can't help but listening. And I torment myself with stupidity. I do. My wife asked me, why do you watch this stuff? I'm going, I can't help it. I, I, I'm a glutton for punishment. You know? And I'll sit and watch these people, and they're sitting talking about the craziest stuff, and they'll talk, and here's what they'll say. They'll get some scientist on her with a PhD, which means what? Never mind. You know what it means. PhD, and he's on there, he's going, well, you know, out of all the billions and billions of galaxies that are in the universe, to think that we're the only ones here is just, oh, how, how arrogant that is. How, how crazy. There must be hundreds of thousands of other, you know, whatever, civilizations out there. Of course, the first thought I have is, or that proves how special you are. How special we are. That we live on this little tiny blue marble in the midst of a vast, vast universe. Not just our own galaxy, but the universe itself was created for days and for months and for years, the Bible says. But why? To give light on the earth and onto mankind. That's how special you are. Oh, there's, you know, I've had people say, you don't, you don't believe in aliens? I said, only coming across from Mexico. <laughs> if you're talking about living out on some other planet, brother, they're never going to find it. It doesn't exist. God made man in his own image. God has set the boundaries of his habitation. He's placed us on this little blue marble that if it was one centimeter this way, it would burn up. If it was one centimeter this way, it would you know, be an iceberg. 
no life could exist, but it's placed just perfectly, you know, between the sun and everything else, and everything grows, and here we are. And to look up, you know, the Bible says the heavens declare his handiwork. We look up and we say, what a marvelous, exciting, and powerful God that we serve. You know, I don't look up and go, wow, I wonder if there's aliens that are going to come and rescue us from ourselves. Because that's what they're hoping for. That's what they're hoping for. But I did have a kid, and I'm, I'm going I'm to close with this after we read these last two verses. But let me close this, this point. I did have a kid many years ago who I was sitting, I was actually in a hot tub in a motel, minding my own business. But I was in a hot tub and I was talking to this kid. Of course, we started talking about the Lord. And eventually the kid gave his life to Christ right there in the hot tub. And so we got out, we kind of went through our bonding thing. I prayed with him and we prayed together and it was a good time. And we got out, it was drying off. And he said, well, I got one more, one more question, one more question. I said, ask on, brother. He goes, what about aliens? And I said, you mean like from Mexico? No, no. I mean, I said, oh, you mean like little green men, aliens like from another planet? He goes, well, I said, look, let me make this absolutely clear. I think that you are so special that God put us here. We're it, man. Everything was made to surround his creation. But let's say you're right. Let's say that God has created something else out there that has a semblance that looks something like a man. I said, my gosh, a monkey looks something like a man, but he's not. You hear evolution all the time. Well, they, you know, we're one chromosome away from an ape. Look at the difference that that chromosome makes. Do you understand what I'm saying? What a difference. But I told him, I said, let's say you're right. Here's what I told him. I don't know. What covenant God may have made with some other being that he has created, if he has created something else in this universe. But I do know the covenant that he has made with man. And it is spoken clearly in his word. And unless you receive the gift of life through Jesus Christ, you will perish and it will be for eternity. But it's not God's will that any perish but that all come to repentance. I said, son, you know, listen, these people are hoping that there are UFOs. And what I mean by that is unidentified flying, whatever, with people, aliens, whatever. They think they're going to come and rescue you. Well, listen, we're the aliens. We are. We're aliens in this life. We're aliens on this world. This is not our home. And the Lord is going to come back and he is going to take us to our home, which is in heaven. And I've had people say, but where's that at? Anywhere Jesus is at is going to be heaven. That's, that's as far as I'm concerned. That's heaven for me. But you know what? So often people are looking for an escape and you've got one in Jesus Christ. But it's certainly not in the universe at hand. It was made for God's glory. It glorifies him. We look at it and we are amazed at it. Look at verse 28 and 29 as we finish. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. That's because it's spiritual. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So often we 
think of fire, and I mentioned it earlier, that in the process of nature, there is this thing we call a slow-burning fire of nature. When you go back and you look at the story, in the book of Isaiah, God had sent out the Assyrian army had surrounded the children of Israel. And the Lord sent one angel out that night. You probably know the story. And he killed 185,000. 185,000. One angel. One night. The angel had his hands full for a few hours. 185,000. Next morning, Israelites get up and they look out the, the tents to see the army that was surrounding them. And all they saw was corpses. To where the men, the sinners, it says in Zion, said, how can we, you know, how can we be in the midst of the fire of God? How can we experience this? How can we, how can we be saved from it? I've often thought that story was very interesting to me. Who among us can dwell in the midst of this devouring fire? Fire does some interesting things when you think about it. It can harden clay. It can harden steel. It can melt things. It can take something that seemingly is permanent and make it vanish in a, in a moment. And the God is like that. Our God is like that. He's a consuming fire, but it's what he's doing depends upon what the material is he's working with. If he's working with a child of God, then the consuming fire is transmitting and transforming us into the image of his son. If you're not a child of God, that fire will eventually consume you completely. It's not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, gang. If you're listening to this, you know, by radio or anybody, I would encourage you to get your life where it needs to be with Jesus Christ. Accept the Lord as your Savior. Why? Because He loves you. God has done all that He possibly can do it's not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God simply wants us to acknowledge, change your mind about who Jesus Christ is, and accept all that he has done on your behalf. He couldn't have done any more. And how simple it is to simply say, yes, Lord, I accept that. So I pray for you. Do that. Do it today. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time and for your word, and we just ask, Lord Father, that your blessing would be upon it that Father, the Holy Spirit, he would go beforehand and that he would touch the hearts and the minds, Lord, of those who heard it, Lord Father, and that it would be your spirit that speaks to them, that many might come to know you as Lord and Savior, Father, that we might save some for the kingdom. We love you and we thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.